Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. For this panel discussion in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I'm here today with Christine Samuel, an advanced practice provider at MD Anderson Cancer Center, Michael Ross, a nurse practitioner at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Lily Shockney, a professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you all for joining us. We're excited to have a great discussion today. So to start us off, Christine, what are some of the current treatments for patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer or TNBC? Well, as you know, because triple negative breast cancer doesn't have the receptors, the estrogen, the progesterone, and the human epidermal growth factor, HER2, on their surface, unfortunately, there are not a lot of therapies. Chemo is still one of the mainstay, but in the past um, couple years, we have some new drugs, PARP inhibitors for patients that are BRCA1, BRCA2 positive, and they also have triple negative breast cancer. Also, Immune checkpoint inhibitors like atezolizumab and pembrolizumab have been approved within the past two or three years to, to help with advanced disease, usually as a third line. And there was a new, also a new drug that was recently approved. Um, it's a antibody drug conjugate. And so they're getting more targeted therapies, but unlike the other breast cancers are hormone positive. There's still a lot of research that needs to continue to find effective treatments for the triple negative population. What are some of the other recent advances um, that have been done in metastatic TNBC research? The new PARP inhibitors, those have been approved within the past like 2020. Olaparib was approved for BRCA mutated HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. Talazoparib, I, I actually worked on that study. It was also approved in 2018, October, by the FDA for BRCA mutated HER2. And it's those are both oral drugs that are tolerated fairly well. And in the atezolizumab with ataxane, which is abraxane, I also participated on that study. And even though the response, the overall objective response rate is around 15 to 20%, it's it's the results are better with the patients if they're PD, PD1, PD1 positive. And there's also new, new research um, for in the metastatic setting, setting for antitrope 2 for a third line. And that's, that's the, um, the new drug, the um, antibody conjugate. So what are some of the ways that you anticipate the treatment will continue to evolve in the coming years? I think they're going to just have to continue to do more research, try different combinations with um, a variety of clinical trials, find new pathways to 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 fight this this disease because the prognosis is is very poor, um, and and try to find a way to get the immune checkpoint inhibitors to become more efficacious. Thank you so much for giving us that really comprehensive overview. Thank you. So along with these newer treatments, Michael, can you tell us about some of the more, more common side effects and the best strategies to manage them? Absolutely, and thank you for that. And, and you know, great overview, Christine. You know, as we get new agents, uh, what I find is particularly interesting is we continue to have some of the old nemesis uh, in terms of side effects continue to crop up, but we have to think about treating um, the same old side effects that come up with these new agents. So for example, you know, the trope one antibody drug conjugate that Christine talked about, sasituzumab govotecan. 
And, you know, it's interesting um, in that basically it's a way to take an old style drug, a topoisomerase inhibitor, as in iranotecan, but in this case, um, but taking it with an antibody drug conjugate and letting it be more selective. But we run into exactly the same types of side effects that we see with the trope one, you know, with iranotecan, which we have not used that much uh, because of the side effect profile. So with sasituzumab, which has shown overall survival in the third line setting, you know, we still come across diarrhea. We come across rash and nausea. So, um, you know, I think one has to be really creative at mixing and matching old strategies to manage these side effects with the newer agents and not forget what we've learned in the last 30 years. For example, with sasituzumab, um, knowing that it's similar to iranotecan, I actually use atropine as one of the medications right in the infusion chair. We always did it with iranotecan, and now I do it with sasituzumab, knowing that it will help control diarrhea. We'll see that. And then um, even, for example, um, if that doesn't do the job with controlling diarrhea, then I reach for something called cholestopol, which in another trial called the control trial that looked at minimizing discontinuation rates from, from a tyrosine kinase inhibitor called neratinib, we actually saw dramatic drops in discontinuation rates when you we use something like cholestopol as opposed to emodium and lamotyl. So, you know, we see some of the same, once again, the same side effects, but I think we, we pull from the past and our legacy on how to manage them. And don't forget that, um, you know, those rules still apply. So what are some of the more challenging side effects that come with hormone-sensitive or HER2-sensitive disease? Yeah, you know, it's, um, so once again, HER2-positive disease, um, you know, we uh, things like pertuzumab, which has been great, uh, the new uh, triplet of tucatinib with capecitabine and Herceptin and the HER2-Climb study, which has also been great. Once again, the same old nemesis of diarrhea. Uh, one side effect that we've had to get a little bit smarter on with some of the new uh, HER2-directed therapies or new, new HER2-directed therapy, um, as in trastuzumab, deruxetecan, is interstitial lung disease. Uh, there, It's a rare and uncommon side effect, but it's an adverse event of special interest. Um, but this can be a side effect that can creep up on you pretty quickly. So we've had to get a little bit better at recognizing and being cognizant um, and moving very, very quickly. You know, we've always moved quickly in cases such as things like taxol-induced pneumonitis, but this is kind of a next level respiratory side effect that we have to um, really be aware of and manage. And then finally, in the hormone receptor positive um, disease, whether it's early stage or even patients with metastatic disease, I find the management of estrogen deprivation side effects to be incredibly challenging especially in the younger populations. We will take these, you know, in some cases, very young ladies, you know, in their 30s, early 40s, used to functioning ovaries and shut those ovaries down and take them from, you know, 30-year-old estrogen state to a postmenopausal plus estrogen state. So it can be really, really challenging in the achiness and the hot flashes that come along with that. So that I find heartbreaking because it's genuine and it's hard, um, and also because of the population you're dealing with, but um, it can be a challenge. In addition to all of these strategies, how do you fit in integrative medicine modalities into your practice, and what side effects do they demonstrate benefit in addressing? 
Now, the, the side effect of estrogen deprivation, most commonly hot flashes um, and also the achiness, those um, just arthralgias, myalgias that tend to be really kind of tough for some people. That's one of the places where I utilize integrated medicine and our integrated medicine service the most often. Um, there have been actual studies that show that acupuncture can help with, for example, aromatase inhibitor associated muscular system uh, symptoms and also with hot flashes. So um, there was actually, excuse me, a um, paper in 2016 JCO that showed that acupuncture plus self-care decreased hot flashes more than just self-care alone. And in terms of achiness, that estrogen deprivation just um, causing those almost pain, um, that there was a JAMA article in 2018 that showed that after 12 weeks of real acupuncture compared to sham acupuncture, that there was a statistically significant decrease in terms of the pain scores uh, in, in the two populations. So if you got acupuncture, you did a lot better. Um, I also find integrative medicine to be a great colleague and friend in terms of the management of insomnia. Uh, they have demonstrated that cognitive behavior therapy, sleep hygiene, feedback, meditation actually works better than pharmacology. So, you know, I am so grateful that um, we, you know, most of the comprehensive cancer centers have really embraced integrative medicine. They have so much to add to it. And reaching for the prescription pad is not always the right answer. Thank you so much for explaining all of these great strategies. My pleasure. So to delve a little bit deeper into improving patients' quality of life, Lily, how do you explain to a patient with metastatic TNBC what the goals of treatment are? Yeah, since the majority of uh, breast cancer patients will have had an earlier stage diagnosis that could be a year ago, two years ago, five, even 10 years ago, at that time, our goal was to have them be cancer-free, uh, a curative intent. Now that they've been diagnosed with metastatic disease, or for some patients, they may have been diagnosed from the beginning with uh, stage four breast cancer, we need them to understand that we're not looking at curing the disease, we're looking at controlling the disease. And what can we do to get the disease into control and have her live in harmony with this disease, very much too focusing on quality of life. Quantity of life should not be the goal, quality of life should be. If you're just existing and you're miserable, uh, that, that really is not a good idea for the patient or for their family. Um, whenever I'm looking at uh, research studies and they'll have graphs and charts that'll show this patient survived three and a half months longer than these other patients in this other line of therapy, I'm the one that always sticks my hand up in the air and say, how were they living? Were they living or were they existing? Uh, and that usually causes the speaker to stop talking <laughs> because they may not know. But I want to make sure that uh, that that the patient is not receiving treatment for treatment's sake, that there are goals of care and that those goals of care are driven by what the patient sees to be her goals. Can you explain what patient-centered care is and what milestones and life goals are? Patient-centered care has become a, a buzzword in the last, I'll say, five years. 
and you may even see uh, or listen to commercials on the radio saying we deliver patient-centered care. Uh, I haven't found very many facilities though that treat cancer patients who are truly delivering patient-centered care. And what I mean by that is the patient is more than her pathology and more than her staging workup. She had a life before she was diagnosed. We want her to have a life during her treatment as well. And to not just be considered, you know, a stage four triple negative breast cancer patient. She's 38 years old. She's a fifth grade school teacher and loves teaching. Uh, she got a divorce last year, which was her idea. She has a nine-year-old son who has autism that she takes care of. Uh, she loves bird watching. She enjoys going to chick flicks with her girlfriend. I want to know all of that about her so that we are able to really focus on her and her needs and see her beyond just her diagnoses. So one of the things that I ask patients, uh, and this applies to all patients, not just those with stage four disease, tell me any milestones that are coming up in the coming months. Um, and a milestone might be that her daughter's getting married or she has her 10th wedding anniversary or she's uh, gonna do a surprise party for her mother who's turning 75. I want to figure out how we can dovetail the treatment with those milestones so that we preserve those milestones rather than sacrificing them to the cancer. So I'll tell patients, I only want you to give this disease what it needs to get it into control. I don't want it to steal away your social time, personal time, family time, not even your work time. If you love your job, or in some cases, they may actually need to continue to work for financial reasons. I only want cancer to get what it needs to, to control it. Do not let it take over you. Do not let it be in charge of your life. Now for life goals, if it's a patient with an earlier stage, I'm gonna say, you know, where do you see yourself in one year, five years, 10 years? And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a 29 year old young woman diagnosed with stage 2B breast cancer. Uh, when I talked to her about her milestones and also her life goals, uh, I said, you know, where, where do you see yourself? And she said, well, I'm getting married in about a year. And I said, that's important for us to tell me the date again so we can work around what we're going to be doing for her treatment because I want her to feel good on the day she gets married, right? You don't want a Jackson Pat drain sticking out underneath of her wedding gown for heaven's sakes. Um, <clears throat> that would be that would be terrible. Or she's so nauseated from the chemotherapy that we gave two days ago that uh, we need to preserve those uh, the, those milestones. So I asked her. I said, "Do you anticipate having a family in the future?" And she said, "Yes, we want to start a family about a year after we're married." So I told her, "I'm going to get you into fertility preservation." Because we're going to be doing chemotherapy first, neoadjuvant chemotherapy to shrink this tumor, shrink the lymph nodes that we also know are positive for breast cancer. And if I don't get you into fertility preservation, you probably will sacrifice being a biological mom. And again, see, I don't want her to have this cancer be in, in control. I also asked her, tell me about your career path. I see that you are a bank teller at a local bank downtown Baltimore. Do you see yourself as the president of the bank in 10 years? And she said, oh, no. She said, I work there because I really like the hours that I work. It's what I do in the evenings and on the weekends that I'm passionate about. And I hope that will be my 
eventual career. So I said, tell me about that. She said, I'm studying to be a concert pianist. I knew we were going to give her a taxane that was going to probably cause her peripheral neuropathy, numbness, tingling, and pain in her fingers and toes. The possibility of her really becoming a, uh, an excellent concert pianist was going to dwindle if I didn't intervene and talk to the medical oncologist and say, hey, we need to look at a different protocol, a different chemotherapy regimen, or this woman may sacrifice what she's passionate about, what her career goals are, where she sees her life goals in the future. And he went, oh, my heavens, yes. So I told her, I said, we're going to give you treatments that may take a little longer before we do your surgery and then follow that with radiation. But um, you still should be able to come a, become a concert pianist if you're good at playing the piano. Uh, I didn't want her to be a patient that would say, you know, five years from now when we finished her treatment, breast cancer is the worst thing that ever happened to me. I wasn't able to be a biological mom. I had to forfeit my career. And it's because of breast cancer, because I would have said, no, it's because your treatment team didn't deliver you patient-centered care. So for <clears throat> patients with stage four disease, again, I want to know those milestones. Those are even more precious than ever for us to be able to preserve them. That might mean that we give her a drug holiday so that she's feeling pretty well for that 10th wedding anniversary, for example. Uh, if her daughter is getting married, we definitely want to go to great lengths to make sure that that window of time a few days before and certainly the day on and the day after that she's feeling as good as we can have her feel. Uh, and that will mean stopping treatment uh, and giving her a break so that uh, we can kind of get these toxic drugs out of her system. So she's feeling as good as she can feel. And when we look at life goals, her life goals might be, I want to see my daughter married one day. My daughter right now is 10. And I might be thinking, you've got triple negative disease. I'm not sure that's a realistic goal for you to physically be here, right, to achieve that life goal. So for, for many years, I would say, I'm so sorry that you probably won't be here. When I know how important this is to patients, very important. So <clears throat> about 25 years ago, I uh, decided to develop some alternative ways for patients to fulfill their life goals that have metastatic uh, breast cancer. So in the case, for example, of someone who will not be here when their young children are adults, um, we provide cards for them to select. I get cards donated, very nice cards, high end, you know, the cards are $8 and $10 a piece. Um, cards for the milestones that their children will achieve uh, when they have their first confirmation or, or bar mitzvah when they get their driver's license, when they graduate from high school, uh, go to college, when they graduate from there, when they get the first career job, when they get married, when they have a baby, what do you want to tell your child on that day? And so they write in these cards and then I ask them to put them in the hands of a family member who will be the keeper of the cards. And I do recommend that these cards be kept in a safety deposit box at a bank because they cannot be replaced. If there's a flood or fire, they're gone and we can't, we can't replicate them because she's gone. Um, I've done this, as I say, for about 25 years and it works because I am privileged to hear from children who are now grown adults. Oftentimes I've never met these kids. Uh, I had one woman that contacted me who uh, said, I never met you, but you took care of my mother 14 years ago when I was just 10 years old. 
And she said, my mother was in and out of the hospital a lot during the last year of her life. And when my dad would bring her home, he would always recruit my Aunt Sarah, my mother's sister, to help take care of her. And I would overhear my mother saying to Aunt Sarah, Lily said to do this and Lily said to do that, but I didn't know who you were or what you were telling my mom until my mother did pass away and my Aunt Sarah became the keeper of my cards. And she said, for every milestone in my life, there's been a card for my mother. And she said, I really have felt my mother's presence and I respect her motherly advice and her love for me and her value system. And she said, I wanted to track you down. And she said, so I called the Johns Hopkins 5,000 number and asked to be transferred to the breast center and said, is there still somebody named Lily there? And they said, yes. And I got you on the phone. She said, because I wanted to tell you three weeks ago when I got married, my aunt Sarah, while she was helping me put on my veil, handed me a card for my mother. And she said the edging of the envelope had yellowed because the card was 14 years old. She said, I opened up the envelope. It was a beautiful wedding card for my mom. And as I looked inside, it was down the left-hand side that my mother had written with her blue pen. And at the top, she wrote, I know you would have chosen wisely who was deserving to have you spend the rest of your life with. In the middle, she wrote marital advice. Don't ever go to bed angry with one another. Whatever it is can be talked through. And at the bottom, she wrote, when your dad lifts your veil and kisses your left cheek, you will feel me kiss your right. And she said, Miss Lily, I swear to you, I felt my mother's kiss. I have always felt my mother's presence through these cards. And I'm curious to know, is that my last card? And I said, well, do you anticipate having a family? And she said, yes, we want to start a family in about a year and a half. I said, when you learn you're pregnant, there's a letter from your mother that describes how she felt when she knew she was carrying you. When the baby is born, there's a letter from your mother describing the first time she held you at the time of your birth and all of her hopes and dreams for you. And then when that baby is a toddler, your mother has recorded her voice saying nursery rhymes and children's stories. So your mother will be a grandmother actively involved in your children's lives. So this works. And uh, I'm so thankful that I, I don't have to say anymore. I'm so sorry you won't be here that this is and has proven to be an effective way. And it is something that I find metastatic breast cancer patients truly do embrace. Uh, so even if uh, I had a patient who was going to become a grandmother and she was very ill, triple negative, and uh, we were looking at just one to two months survival at that point. So <clears throat> I spoke to her daughter who was pregnant and I said, how do you feel about your mom coming with you to meet the baby in ultrasound when you hit five months, which was going to be two weeks from then. And I said, uh, that would really be a wonderful thing that you could do for her if that's okay with you. She said, that would be fabulous. So this patient got to meet her grandson, her first grandchild in ultrasound and see that his, his little profile matched the daughter's profile of the same nose. And uh, she took her hand and put it in the gooey jelly on her, on her daughter's uh, abdomen and said, look at this, I'm even holding the baby right now. So uh, we just have to be creative rather than saying, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for sharing such a powerful story with us. Well, thank you so much, Lily and Christine and Michael, for all sharing all this great advice. And uh, we, we really learned a lot today. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course.
Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to check back throughout Breast Cancer Awareness Month for more of this exclusive interview series, all found at oncdata.com.